certain spending by the government can actually increase productivity and supply capacity inside of the economy. And if that kind of spending goes on, that's deflationary. It counters the inflationary effect. Okay, yeah. uh, Kabuk has recently been pointing to that kind of spending a lot and saying the government uh, must increase its spending in mm. these particular areas in order to prevent um, inflation. So mm. the MMTers are correctly arguing, you know, many MMTers at this point, you know, are correctly arguing, you have to increase that spending, increase it in areas where productivity is going to be increased. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with PhD political scientist, author, and MMTer Joe Firestone about the many reasons why printing money causes inflation is wrong. The original and unedited video of this conversation can be found on the Kerberos Media YouTube channel, a link to which can be found in the show notes. This conversation was inspired by the middle of episode 96 with Graham Elwood. Graham expresses concern with all this money printing during the coronavirus pandemic as the primary cause of all this inflation. At the same time, he's a strong advocate for helping those who need it the most, such as with healthcare, education, and union and worker rights. These two things are contradictory. The government can only spend by creating more money, and there is little the government can do without spending as part of the process. The assertion that government money creation is inherently and always harmful is very close to saying that the government doing anything for anyone is inherently and always harmful. When the government does less, who always gets the short end of the stick? The answer, of course, are those who already get the short end of the stick. The full segment with Graham, which is about 10 minutes long, can be found in full after today's closing music. This conversation with Joe, our sixth episode on my podcast, is as always enlightening. My biggest takeaways are the following. The only thing that can be inflationary is money that is created, that goes into the hands of citizens in the real economy, who spend it, in sectors of the economy that cannot increase production to meet that demand. Much of the money created by the government never reaches those hands to begin with, 
such as bank reserves and as through QE or quantitative easing, or a potential trillion dollar coin. The money that does reach the real economy may be invested or spent overseas. And since taxes and debts are highly regressive, much of it isn't spent, but rather is used to pay off those debts and taxes. Much of the money that is spent is done in sectors of the economy that can increase production to meet that demand. The amount left over that is indeed spent in potentially inflationary sectors is very small. My second takeaway from Joe is that the government can do bold things that can greatly reduce inflationary pressures. Some of it requires little to no money creation, such as by jailing corrupt CEOs, prosecuting and preventing price gouging, negotiating pharmaceutical prices, and increasing union and worker rights. Some of these things may require lots of money creation, such as by providing healthcare, education, and a livable planet for all. The world is not zero sum, it's positive sum. Some kinds of government spending is desperately needed and obviously beneficial. Some kinds of current spending is terribly harmful. The idea that government spending can only be harmful is, in addition to being wrong, anti-government and more precisely anti-poor propaganda. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons have exclusive access to several full-length episodes right now. Patrons also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, such as my recent episode with Warren Mosler. They also support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. Every little bit helps a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now, on to my conversation with Joe Firestone. Enjoy. Welcome to KRTD Chat. I'm your host, Joe Firestone, and my guest today is Jeff Epstein of Activist uh, MMT. Okay, Jeff is widely known for his uh, podcasts, quite wonderful podcasts actually, where he's talking to a lot of MMTers from all over the world really. And uh, these podcasts are very professionally produced. I highly recommend them. Jeff is one of my favorite people. Okay, and <laughs> he's been spreading education, um, MMT education, all over the world, and I really appreciate that. And today we decided to get uh, together because uh, he's got some questions that he wants to ask me. So even though I'm officially the host. I think Jeff is going to be the host of this one, and I'm kind of be I'm going to be on the receiving end of the questions. Okay, so I think we're ready to start, Jeff. So I'm giving things over to you. 
and uh, please uh, let me know what you would like to talk about. Great. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for doing this. Um, always nice to talk with you. Our People can listen to our five interviews so far um, on my podcast. Um, uh, I, I want to... I want to just brief. I want to briefly mention uh, an article I just wrote. That's not what I want to talk about today. I just want to briefly mention it, just to you know, to to share it with people. So I, I wrote an introduction to MMT. Uh, there it is, uh, and it's called uh, a political introduction to real real world economics, and it's it's just basically. It's just basically an introduction to MMT with a political point of view, with the the political ramifications that I that I have learned since. Learning MMT, and uh, I'm 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 pretty happy with it. I would love I I would love, of course love your feedback, Joe, after you take a look at it. Um, so I don't I don't want to talk about it in this hour, but but uh, I just wanted to uh, just plug it so people can read it. You can see the URL down at the bottom of the screen, and if you have feedback, please let me know. So that's all about that. Uh, all right. So what I wanted to talk with you today was, uh, you I'm sure you recall that I spoke with Graham a while ago and you remember there was a moment in the middle where he was saying all that money printing. Um, there's, it's an episode of my podcast. I'm pretty sure it's like episode 95 or 96 um, where he says all of this money printing is causing inflation. And what do you think about that? But then he's also, he's also saying that, um, but the government really should be doing things for people. And of course, you know, he's very, very sympathetic and, and wants to, to do the right thing. And, and, I don't think he realizes it, but but that is a very big conflict of printing money causes inflation. Yet I want the government to do stuff for people. That that doesn't work. That's that's a conflict that they're incompatible with each other. The idea that government creating money causes inflation inherently means the government doing things for people causes inflation and is inherently a bad thing. And that's that's basically anti-government propaganda. More specifically anti-poor propaganda as I see it. So in that interview, I came up with some stuff on the fly and I think I generally got it. And, and you, you told me afterwards that I, that it was, you know, it was, it was in the right, it was in the ballpark. Um, I think I have a, a decent understanding of it, which I'm going to go through. But I really would like to deepen that understanding because I think I'm missing a lot. Um, so I'm going to share a, I'm going to share what I understand of this, and then we can talk about it. Is that all right? Great. Okay. So this is a, a good tweet by Kyle Kalinske, just basically that, that inflation is more complicated than creating money. And then this person says, uh, wait a minute, printing trillions of dollars doesn't lead to inflation? Please explain. And then I responded to that, oops, this. And this is basically what I said on Graham's show. The creation of money by the government is only one of many things that can potentially increase or decrease prices. I don't want to use the term inflation because everybody has their own definition of inflation. Government creating money is only one of many potential things that can increase or decrease prices or not affect them at all. Every minute of every day, the government also deletes money through taxation and so on. Oops. Banks create and delete money through loans. And then I continue productivity can be increased and decreased things can be imported or exported they can be made more efficient and invented people are born they die they immigrate they emigrate money is spent overseas to buy overseas products and so on the 
The idea that government money creation always and inherently causes prices to rise ignores all of these things and essentially assumes that time stands still. And as I said before, it's anti-government. It's, it's essentially anti-government propaganda, whether they realize it or not. Uh, and then two final points that I make is that even a little bit of spending on something that's inflationary is always bad. And even a ton, an enormous amount of spending on non-inflationary things is is always good, assuming it's on a, on a good thing. Um, so anyway, that, that's, that's, uh, uh, that's enough to get started. Um, so, you know, I th again, I think I have some decent points here and there, and I think I'm in the right ballpark, but I think it's a pretty shallow understanding, and I wanted to pass that by you and to get your thoughts of how to make this more solid. Okay, thank you. Okay, first of all, you know, simply to create money um, is not to spend it. Hmm. Okay, that's the first point. In other words, one can create as much money as one wants to create and place it in the treasury spending account. And if the treasury doesn't spend it, you know, it doesn't become a part of the money supply. It's not going to be uh, inflationary. Secondly, there's a distinction between creating money or printing money, uh, spending money by uh, economy, and creating or spending net financial assets in the um, economy. Two different things. Uh, the Federal Reserve, of course, um, creates and has created a lot of money. Uh, most of the money we've seen created over the last uh, decade, um, shall we say, uh, has been in the form of uh, quantitative easing, so-called, where the Federal Reserve is placing reserves in the accounts okay, of actors that are swapping assets with the Fed. The Fed's assets are the new reserves okay, it creates, and the other assets, uh, you know, maybe stocks, they may be treasury bonds, they're financial assets that are usually owned by big banks, you know, or by other uh, very big actors uh, in the economy. The question is whether that kind of creation of money and swapping for assets is um, inflationary. It's not creating any new um, net financial assets in theory, supposedly. Okay, in other words, the Fed is trading, let's say, a trillion dollars, okay, in reserves and is taking on a lot of the financial assets that exist in the private sector, which th then it comes to own. And the question which arises is, does the influx okay, of the reserves from the Fed 
have an inflationary effect on assets that are already in the economy. Supposedly, this is just a swap of assets and the value of the reserves is equal to the market value of what the private sector people are, are you know, giving to the Fed as part of the swap. But there are, are some questions about this because uh, what the private sector people are giving to the Fed is actually valued according to paper value. Let's say, for example, what the private sector uh, companies uh, may have paid for those assets in the first place on the accounting records of the, uh, the private sector companies. Uh, they may value something at, say, $100 million. But maybe the market value at the time of the swap to the Federal Reserve is far less than $100 million. I'm sure this happened a lot um, during the swap outs following the crash of 2008. There had been a market decline in the real estate values of some of the assets the private sector had. And when they swapped uh, those assets with uh, the Fed, they were looking at the book value on their books okay, of those assets. And the Federal Reserve was not attempting uh, to do a mark-to-market thing of those assets. So let's say the assets had fallen by 40% and the Federal Reserve was swapping them out, you know, for reserves at 100% of book value. Obviously, that kind of thing would have an inflationary effect on uh, the private sector values. The interesting thing here is that that's probably what the Fed wanted to do. It was probably part of the intention of the Fed to make the balance sheets of the private companies actually look better mm. by giving them the reserves instead of the private assets that if they tried to sell those into the marketplace at the time, they might only have a fraction of their book value. So the Federal Reserve was trying to prop up uh, the asset values of the private banks, um, especially okay, in that particular situation. Let me ask actually a follow-up because that reminds me of a conversation we had in one of our five interviews where I was struggling with the concept of, of uh, I can't even describe, but how, how far can they go with that propping up? You know, they, they are the, the lender of last resort, but there's only so much in the real world. So how much of that propping up can they actually do until, you know what what is the thing in the real world that that would break that that would make that even that propping up no longer possible um <laughs> is that a clear question it's a clear question and the clear answer is the only limits okay, are the policies that the federal reserve chooses to follow Okay, so, for example, 
right after the crash of 2008, well, in 2009, actually, uh, the Federal Reserve was doing its best to extend lots and lots of credit to the private sector. Uh, one study that was done by some students, okay, of Randy Ray's, uh, indicated at one time that if you took all the credit okay, that the Fed had advanced uh, to private sector organizations between, let's say, 2009 and 2012, okay, when the study was done, I might have the date of that wrong. It might have been uh, 2011. You know, I don't recall. But the outstanding figure was that the total amount of credit that had been advanced to the private banks was $29 trillion. That reminds me of what Bernie discovered as part of his demanding an audit. Yes, $29 trillion. Okay. Uh, okay, now that wasn't... Uh, you know, a total, an absolute value of $29 trillion at once. It was a study about what the credit facilities were advancing to the private sector. So, in other words, uh, you know, there might be advanced, I don't know, $2 trillion at one point in time, and then the private banks would pay back, quote-unquote, $2 trillion. But then they take the same $2 trillion, um, and this would be recycled and recycled, okay, and recycled. And what they studied was the total amount of credit that had been advanced. And that's what the figure of $29 trillion um, actually represents. Okay, uh, it doesn't mean that they gave the private sector $29 trillion and let them keep the whole total of, you know, $29 trillion. We're not at the kind of. Part, partially wrote that off, partially forgave that, you know, there's, there's, you could do both sides of the transaction. Um, um, I'm not saying they forgave it. They circulated it. Okay. okay. In other words, the banks would pay the Fed back and the Fed would immediately advance them the same money again. Okay. I don't know what the total is, uh, you know, that they were advancing, okay, at any particular time. They were advancing as much as they needed to advance in their eyes, to make the banks fully liquid, okay. fully stable. They were trying to avoid, um, you know, a liquidity crisis. So I actually, if I, I actually have a memory of, of you saying that they can do this for as long as the public allows it, accepts it. And once they don't, then that's that. Uh, I think that's a good way to look at it. But... Uh, you know, I think it's also true that uh, the public has a lot of tolerance uh, for the Fed doing crazy things. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, okay, in the latest crisis on COVID, uh, the Fed took rough $456 billion dollars Right. from the Treasury Department that had been appropriated by Congress. Mm -hmm. And the Treasury sent it over to the Fed. And the Fed created a money cannon of credit for the big companies, which amounted to roughly $4.6 trillion. In other words, 10 to 1. Right. Right. I actually, we, yeah, we spoke about this with, with my previous appearance with Graham, that the $4 trillion was... The, the four hundred billion was roughly the Congress. That is what we will back you up for. That that's the anticipation of how might how much might go bad, 
of your four trillion dollars in loans. All right, but uh, actually, none of the four point six trillion went bad because the big companies use very little of the four point six trillion dollars for anything. I mean, what they did is they basically they made it known to the public that they had $4.6 trillion that was backing them. Mm -hmm. And what they did is after they made it known that they had $4.6 trillion in backing from the federal government, uh, they bought more of their own stock mm -hmm. to raise the value of okay. their own stock. Okay. 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 Um, so let me ask a question so we can get back to the, the original subject of what we were talking about. And that is, can you define uh, mark to market? Uh, yeah, it was the practice. Okay. It's a practice defined by accounting firms, which says that the value okay, of an asset should be evaluated uh, according to its market value okay, at any particular time. But the Fed did not do that in 2008 when it was going through these swaps. It, it was swapping according to the book value before the recession occurred. Okay, what's what's book? I understand what market value is. This is what people are willing to pay. What's the book value with the original value of when they were first given that? Well, the nominal value? Uh, 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 the nominal value that the private sector companies uh, had bought the asset for. So let's say they bought okay. a house for $400,000, okay. something like that. So on their books, it has a value of $400,000 because that's okay. what they paid for it. Okay. Okay. So basically it's original value. And now the market value is the current value. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. Well, one more thing, which is uh, bef before we get like back into our main subject, which is Neil Wilson uh, kind of, changed my thinking on this particular topic that that and it and it changed after i wrote these tweets that i just shared and that is instead of saying government spending we should say government buying and it actually really makes sense which is which is the government buys things because spending implies finite spending implies a finite substance a commodity it's something that can run spending implies running out if you spend something that implies running out um, um, you know, I'm sorry. I don't um, accept that. Okay. I mean, I think it's fair for Neil to make that kind of interpretation and to frame it, uh, you know, in that way. But at the same time, uh, one can also frame it as government spending is not like private sector spending. Private sector spending, in other words, the spending by the private sector is something the private sector can run out of. But the spending of the government is not something the government, okay, is able to run out of. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So, but but I like it. I like it, and for myself, I, I and in this article, you'll see that I use that, and I actually think it's very. I really like it. I really like it, and that and that, so let me just finish describing it. And that is the government buy stuff. So, for example, they buy or they purchase. Um, Government, the government representatives, teachers, uh, construction workers, 
and uh, any number of any number of things, and they buy those people with wages. Wages are and wages are paid for with created money, and what they get for that is real world things such as bridges and roads and and uh, you know justice and and educated populace. So I, I really like that framing. Um, so I understand what you're saying that we could we could simply say in the national context these things still have meaning, but it's very different, and that that's fine too. I, I happen to really like what what he was saying. Okay. Um, so um, okay, so so back to our original purpose, which is uh, the the government creating money inherently and always causes inflation. Um, let me go back. Let me go back to uh, a tweet. So. I got response to my thread that I had read through earlier, and this person said they printed one third of the money in supply and circulation in the past year, and therefore I don't know what I'm talking about because clearly that has to have an inflationary effect. This guy is suggesting, and I can kind of roughly see the answer to this, but I don't know how to precisely say it, and I'll just say that who cares the past 12 months were really extraordinary and required something very different and it there were things that needed to be purchased that people didn't have the money to purchase so so i'll, I'll just leave it there what do you think joe okay what i think is that first of all i'd have to see the statistic second of all i'd have to see who he's talking about who is they? Is he talking about the Treasury Department? Is he talking about the Fed? Okay, but also, as I said before, this is not about um, actually printing money okay, or creating money. It's about creating financial assets. Creating financial assets for the private sector, that might have an inflationary effect. But simply creating money, okay, and putting it nowhere or sending it to rich people who are going to save, let's say, four-fifths of the money or nine-tenths of the money, mm -hmm. that's not going to be um, inflationary, except it mm -hmm. may be inflationary later because uh, they may go crazy in some kind of asset bubble, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and create um, asset inflation. But they may not create inflation okay, in day-to-day -day goods that people are buying as, you know, part of the real economy. Okay. Okay, so it's very complicated as to what it is going to be inflation. But I think that it's better if people think in terms of a, a creation of net financial assets as opposed to simply creation, okay, of money. You know, for example, banks, mm. as you know very well, are always creating money when they make loans. Mm -hmm. Okay, now sometimes that money uh, has an inflationary effect because it allows businesses uh, to spend, and the spending can have a multiplier effect, and the multiplier effects. Uh, can be such that if it's in certain areas of the economy, it can cause inflation uh, in those areas. But the simple making of a loan, okay, and creating money doesn't have to have an inflationary effect. 
Hmm. It depends on the channel that's actually affected by the spending. So, so let me give a, a few examples, which I'm, I'm going to see if I got any of what you said previously, which is creating money. That could mean reserves for banks. That doesn't directly do anything to the general public. Uh, it could mean creating a trillion-dollar coin, which is a, which doesn't do anything at all because that only activates funding that was already, uh, you know, appropriated by Congress. It's you know that allows that that spending to happen. And uh, 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 yeah, well, for example, if you created a hundred trillion-dollar coin, okay, and you put it into the Treasury spending account, uh, you know, and say Congress appropriated. Six trillion dollars for that year right. in federal spending, mm-hmm. then whatever inflationary effect um, had occurred would occurred due to the spending of the six trillion dollars and not right. due to the creation of the hundred trillion dollars. Right, and it, it, that would allow what they had already allocated or appropriated, and any future appropriations as well as they happen. So that's basically permission for that to happen, as opposed to like the money itself, and money that's given to you know net. Okay, so then there's net financial assets so that actually goes to people in the economy, rich people who invest it. That's not that's not spent, at least certainly not now. So investments, it's not spent money spent overseas is sent overseas. So that's purchasing uh, products in other countries. So that's not spent there. At the, so the, the core of this would be a very small amount that would actually go to average people that might be potentially spent on stuff, but they have a lot of debt. Those are the people that have a lot of debt. So uh, right. But not only do they have a lot of debt, also they pay a lot of taxes. Okay, so uh, if spending went into the mm. private sector economy, okay, and most of it actually went to people, it would also be the case that those people would take the paying taxes back to the federal government, and they might be paying three or four trillion back uh, in taxes. So the net financial assets that were huh. remaining in the economy as a result of that spending might be only two trillion dollars. Interesting. Six trillion dollars. Okay, so 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 what are what are there any are there other major uh, aspects of this? So for so for example, bank reserves, that's creating money. Bank reserves is creating money. Obviously, stays in the banking reserve system, so that does not directly affect anything in the real economy. Uh, trillion dollar coin is a great example. Uh, giving to rich people who invest is a great example. Uh, basically, any kind of leakage. Any kind of leakage is not going to be affecting the economy. A leakage defined as not spending. So yeah. saving is a leakage. So spending overseas is a leakage. And taxes, um, tax payments, they're a leakage. Yeah. Okay. So, so what other major kind of? Are there any other major kinds of categories of of uh, not net financial assets? Basically, as, uh, uh, yeah. Um, okay. I think those are the major leakages, those three categories, okay, that we talked about. Huh. Okay. Um, you know, those are the major leakages. So those are the net financial assets. Those leakages are of the net financial assets that are not spent. Leakages are the net financial assets, uh, yeah, that are not spent. So they're they're taxed. They go to the they go to debt. They go into investments. They go overseas. Um, those are the major leakages that we're talking about. 
Uh, yeah, those are the major leakages, okay, that we're talking about. But also, we can't just consider this um, from the standpoint, okay, of macro. In other words, let's say the government spends, you know, Treasury spends taxation on its taxes, and there are leakages to the foreign sector, okay, and there are leakages to savings. Okay, so let's say after all is said and done, uh, the net financial assets that are actually increased in the economy, okay, let's say that amounts to... I don't know, let's say 700 billion okay, in a particular year or a trillion okay, in a particular year okay, or something like that. So there's a trillion in net financial assets that were not there before that goes into the um, economy. Now, where that goes is critical in terms of inflation. Right. If it goes to the wrong people, if it goes to the wrong sectors, if it goes to buy the wrong things, then it can be very, very inflationary. Uh, uh, you know, if it goes into areas where supply is short, and yet the critical areas of supply that are used by the whole economy, then you can create a general inflation very easily such as uh, uh, the most famous example is the oil inflations of the 1970s, mm -hmm. you know, where the prices of oil, okay, were raised, okay, and that percolated through all the rest of the economy because all the rest of the economy was using oil. Which is a reflection of, as I understand it, the, ca the main causes of inflation are bad policy and catastrophe, and then the fact that that oil percolated, as you're just saying, that they chose to raise the price of oil, our bad policy was making our economy overly dependent on that one product. And that That's gave good. market power to OPEC. Yes. And so that is bad policy that caused that inflation. That was bad policy. Yes, that caused that inflation. Absolutely. Uh, so... Uh, in terms of the current inflation, okay, that we're seeing, of course, we have a debate between our private sector, the conservatives, who are trying to say, well, we're seeing all this inflation because the government gave a lot of money to poor people, um, to middle class people, uh, you know, to help them uh, uh, through the pandemic. So they had a lot of money to spend and they overspent, and that's what caused inflation. <laughs> uh, you know, it's always the poor people. The economist to that, of course, <laughs> is, well, there were the supply chains disruptions um, but due to the pandemic, and that was critical in causing the inflation. And then after that kind of talk was going on for a month or two, some economists began to point out, well, we have remarkable concentration of industry these days, very competitive, uh, non-competitive situations in certain areas of the economy uh, where it's very easy for large companies that have a lot okay, of market power because of concentrations of industry to simply take excess profits because they have the power to take excess profits and to mark up prices. Right. And it turns out when Matt Stoller did a recent analysis about that, he showed 
that 60% of the increase in inflation was due to price setting by large companies. Which is, again, bad policy because the government lets these companies do these things. And because the government allowed the concentration to take place, not only did they allow the the concentration to take place over a period of years, but when they formulated their COVID policies in terms of the CARES Act, they created a situation where all kinds of small businesses would not get help and would be driven out of business and they caused an acceleration of economic concentration Mm. in the very response to the COVID crisis. So Mm. as we're starting to come out of the COVID crisis, the economy is even more concentrated than it was before, giving even more market power to the large companies Mm. to raise prices and extract things in a very unfair way from the public. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So, so we've, we've spoken about net financial assets are the things that are potentially spent. All of those leakages take away from that potential spending. And among the money that's at, that is actually spent, that is not taxed away, that is not spent overseas, that is not invested, that is not paying debt, I think is fair to say part of that as well. All of that actual spending has to go to industries that are inflationary, has to go to things that are potentially inflationary. If we have the capacity to handle that spending, then that's not going to be inflationary. So we're talking about a very, very small percentage of things that are potentially inflationary. So that's the net financial assets and that's the leakages. Now going above that, it is the basically the definition of money. Going to reserve, creating money for reserves is doesn't affect the real economy, directly speaking. Uh, a trillion-dollar coin does not affect the economy, uh, directly speaking. Uh, it doesn't go into the economy. It certainly does not become a net financial asset, at least nowhere near direct linked to that. So what outside of the net financial assets? And the, what are more of these examples of what are more of the examples of, of money creation, basically, that is not net financial assets? Well, of course, um, theoretically, when the Federal Reserve does its swaps, um, quantitative easing swaps uh, with the private sector, that's not supposed to be um, inflationary because theoretically it's a one-for-one financial swap. For every dollar they create out, they they take some back. Now, they might a cynic might say, oh, yeah, but they're taking back in debt. They're putting out reserves, uh, reserves. It's again, it's reserves, but they're exchanging that for assets, I guess. Uh, they're exchanging that for assets, which at the time they make the trade are falsely valued. Okay, in other words, the Federal Reserve is doing trades where the value of the assets is inflated because they aren't doing a mark-to-market trade. They're doing a trade uh, for book value. Okay, so the original value, which has degraded, the market value is below the book value, but they're giving them the book value in reserves and taking that, that asset, that inflated asset, out of the economy. So, But those reserves remain in the banking reserve system, and that asset is removed from the real economy, Right. 
the asset, uh, it's a financial asset, and it then goes on the books of the Federal Reserve. Okay, in other words, the assets on the books of the Federal Reserve uh, don't actually become a mark-to-market asset okay, until much later when the Federal Reserve takes those assets and, you know, puts them back into the um, economy. How would it put the, them back into the economy? It might sell those assets back into the um, economy. So part of what the Federal Reserve is doing here is actually speculating. In other words, going back to the example of the crash of 2008, you know, 2009. Okay, let's say they took an asset, uh, you know, for $100 million. Okay, and they gave $100 million, okay, in reserves, uh, you know, to uh, try to maintain the liquidity of some bank. At the time they were doing it, they might have very well known that the market value of that particular financial asset was actually only $60 million. But say the Federal Reserve holds that asset, holds it, let's say, for two years, and then it wants to unwind the liquidity in some way. In other words, it makes the calculation itself, well, there are too many reserves in the system, okay, at this point, and we would like to pull some of the reserves out, okay. Uh, so now uh, we're going to sell this asset, okay, instead of selling it for the book value, uh, in other words, to make things even, we have to get the book value that we bought it for in that swap. Mm -hmm. But the economy would have had time to recover. Mm -hmm. So maybe, let's say by 2013 or 2014, the book value of that asset could again be $100 million. Right. So then they sell it back into the economy, and it turns out, uh, it turns out to have been a real swap in the end. In the long term. Okay. In the long term. But we don't know how much of this goes on. There's no tracking of this. But even even so, that reserve doesn't give the bank more liquidity because loans are not reserve constrained, right? Uh, but this isn't the loan. Okay. In other words, what the Federal Reserve? No, I don't. I don't mean. I don't mean the Fed is loaning to the banks. I mean that giving reserves in exchange for assets, the swap, this, you know, in, in a large scale, that's QE. This, uh, the, the term I forget. Um, Quantitative easing. Yeah. No. 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 The the smaller version of that. Uh, there's this. I swap now and I give it back later. I, there's a term for that. I, I don't recall. Um, but they 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 give reserves. They take assets. But those reserves. They're loaned, but those reserves make the bank more liquid. But reserve, but the bank's loan, bank's loans are not reserve constrained. So the existence of those reserves, as I understand it, are not do not give the banks more liquidity, more flexibility because their loans are not reserve constrained. 
Okay, it's not about the ability of banks to make the loans. In other words, the banks make the loans out of thin air. Of course. Um, but we know that. Okay. Um, however, okay, let's say the market value of the reserve of $100 million was actually $60 million. And the Fed has swapped it out uh, for uh, for book value. A hundred million. Hundred million. Okay. That means the accountants for the bank oh. now have the hundred million. So the bank's balance sheet looks better. Okay. So then, why do you call? Then why do you say you you said? Okay, that makes sense. So it just inflates the. The public view of the bank, the the accounting of the bank, so they can give a better report of saying we're doing great, even though they were. That's how what you mean by propped up, so that that's how the Fed props them up by allowing them to. Well, to that's not quite what I mean, okay, by propping them up. If they trade a financial asset the bank holds for more than the market value of that asset, because they're looking only okay at the book value. Mm -hmm then they're inflating the real financial state of that bank. If they give the bank $100 million, that's $40 million more than the bank would have had if it sold the asset into the market. And the bank can brag, we are worth $40 million more than we were yesterday, so we're doing better. No, because it valued yesterday in terms of its accounting books it had the hundred million dollars on its accounting books. Okay, what it does is oh, it was the book value was on its books. The book value was the on book its books. Book value was on its books. So the book value stays on its books because now it got the hundred million in reserves. Whereas right. if it had sold that asset into the private sector, it would have had to have dropped its book value by forty million dollars. So it protected the bank. So I mean, that's kind of seems like prop, propping it up. It protects them from having to sell that asset at, at market value. Uh, uh, right. It's propping them up in that sense. Okay. It's propping up the book value of the banks and therefore protecting the banks from a collapse. In other words, the banks, uh, when the accountants come in and value the assets of the banks, the assets are still there at the same value because they swapped everything out for new reserves uh, okay. from the Fed. So when you say liquid. Let's compare this to homeowners. Okay. Let's say the homeowners and the homeowners wanted to sell $100 million of book value assets that they had. Okay. And they went into the market. Oh, but it, there was the crash. So now those homes were worth only $60 million. The homeowners weren't propped up by the federal government. So the homeowners actually lost the $40 million. They were underwater. Because they don't have the a... Banks yeah. were not underwater because the Federal Reserve extended the reserves to them. So the homeowners were forced by something to have to sell, to have to do something based on the, the now market value. Yes, and, they and, and the reason why many homeowners 
were forced to try to sell based on the market value was because it was a depression. They lost their jobs. Mm. So they were caught in the squeeze. They were not propped up by the federal government, you know, in the Federal Reserve. That's what's behind the idea that the government bailed out the banks, but they didn't bail out the homeowners. What was needed was a bailout from the bottom up. Instead, there was a bailout only for the top. Right. And I just learned just very first, very uh, vaguely that a bailout of the homeowners would have been billions, but instead they chose to go with a bailout of the banks, which was trillions, and kept the recession going. If they bailed out the homeowners, it would have been billions and the recession would have largely ended. Yes. And that was Obama. Yeah. Um, Mr. Obama. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, okay. So let me see if I can, let me see if I can review. I, I let me see if I can review what, what you've said. And that is um, government creating money does not inherently or uh, does not inherently and always cause inflation because the definition of money can mean one of many things that money does not necessarily go into the economy. The only spending that can cause inflation is money that is actually put into the hands of people who spend that money in inflationary sectors. And that is a vanishingly small, or I, I think it's fair to say a small percentage, maybe not minuscule, but certainly a small percentage of the total amount of money that is created because it's in that financial assets, because of all the leakages, um, go ahead. Certain spending by the government can actually increase productivity and supply capacity inside of the economy. And if that kind of spending goes on, that's deflationary. It counters the inflationary effect. Okay. Bafado Kaboop has recently been pointing to that kind of spending a lot and saying the government uh, must increase its spending in mm. these particular areas in order to prevent um, inflation. So mm. the MMTers are correctly arguing, you know, many MMTers at this point, you know, are correctly arguing, you have to increase that spending, increase it in areas where productivity is going to be increased. Mm. It, okay, in areas where our capacity to produce uh, is going to increase. Spend it, okay, in areas where um, even our capacity uh, to produce things is going to increase two years from now or three years mm -hmm. from now. Of course, I didn't even think of that angle of it. Spend, uh, government spending can be geared towards increasing productivity, which can counteract the, the spending that is spent on potentially in you know, inflationary, whatever, that, that's obviously, obviously. Um, increasing productivity and increasing supply. Okay. And in Andres's paper, yeah. um, you know, Andres Bernal's the Theory of Inflation, he focuses on the idea that we need to try to find the sectors of the economy where cultural factors political factors, sociological factors are increasing inflation. Mm. 
and others where those same factors would tend to decrease the uh, inflationary effect of, of spending. So the MMTers have departed from an aggregate kind of macroeconomic explanation okay, of inflation and they're now going into microeconomic areas and they're looking closely at those to find the real roots okay, of macro uh, inflation at a micro level. Hmm. And of course, that gets them into monopoly concerns and into antitrust concerns and, uh, you know, into a lot of those kinds of concerns. So the study of inflation really gets broadened out. It's hmm. very far away from the quantity theory of money. Hmm. And again, bad government policy is what allows these horrible things to happen. And what has allowed it to happen over the last 40 years, especially when we've pursued these policies of allowing economic concentration to take place, not paying attention to economic concentration, uh, not paying attention to antitrust, uh, you know, just allowing people to get away with murder because that's what the neoliberal economists said was the sensible thing to do. And this is the result that we have from it. They haven't mm -hmm. been enforcing the antitrust laws for 40 years now. Because we can't have a truly free market unless we have a truly free market. If you don't go truly free, then how can we know if it's going to work or not? Which is exactly like my 15-year-old saying, if you don't let me play with my, my computer forever, then we will never know if I'll get bored of it and spend more time with my family. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. Sorry. Oh, um, you got it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay. I mean, you know, uh, I have a lot to think about now. I, that 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 was that was very helpful. I mean, you know, I, I don't feel it was very kind of coherent on my part, but but I feel like there was a lot of pieces there that that I I can think about now, and uh, so that that was right. very helpful. Okay. So, have you read Andre's paper? Sure, I was on your first show about it. All right, that's what I thought. So. Um, can you read it again and review it with this kind of thing in mind? I think I think you'll find sure, it. sure. And I uh, and uh, and uh, the the former MMT inflation article that was in the Financial Times. I think it was the Financial Times or whatever it was. With, yeah, uh, it was in the Financial Times. It was uh, by Scott, okay, and Nathan, okay, and right. I think Rowan. I right. Of it. Yeah, I think those two are going to be very helpful. Yes, I will. I it definitely will. Helpful. But something else that's going to be very helpful, I think, is um, but Fadel has been giving some interviews recently. Um, he gave an interview uh, to the Bernie staffer, Bree, Bree, Brianna Joy. Uh, yeah, Bree, Bree Joy. Uh, that. That particular interview, that was a wonderful, very comprehensive interview. Good. I'll watch she, it. I have not seen it. She interviewed him very, very well. And, okay, that interview was about an hour and 13 minutes. <laughs> and she dragged it all out of him. Great. In terms of the specifics, great. Now, there were two other interviews about the same time. 
Uh, one was done. It was actually a shorter interview. It uh, was done on KRTD Media uh, by Steve and Gabby. Oh, they're, they're MMT Modern Money Donuts. Modern Money Donuts, right. I'm calling and, it MMD. <laughs> uh, um, but there was a short interview okay, that they did. Uh-huh. Okay, I don't think that was as good as the Bree Bree Joy interview. Oh, it was 20 minutes versus an hour and 13. Uh, right, right, exactly. And they didn't have time to go back in and to deeply explore some of the issues. Sure. Okay, and then there was a third interview. I forgot, I think it was Sabby Sabs mm. who did the third interview with Fadl. Okay. And that was a pretty good interview, too, but it, uh, nowhere near as good as the Pre-Pre-Joy interview. All right. Well, I look forward to watching that. I will watch that. Um, this was very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. I will read that stuff and, and watch that interview. I think that will help a lot. Thank you, Joe. I will talk to you later. And uh, okay, Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, Shane. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape-A-Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus, then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper Digital Audio Workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app.
how, how like the thing I'm I'm worried about, and I'm I'm sure you are too, is like all this money printing that we've done the last year and a half with COVID. Um, we're starting to see some inflation start to happen. The cost of goods and services are just going, uh, just even in the grocery store, you're noticing it. Gas prices have gone up. And how do you see this? Because I, I watch a lot of various financial shows. Um, some, some of them, you know, uh, are from crypto people. But there is a lot of talk of like all this inflation is going to all this money printing and not for necessarily good things, just like, and while we needed, it's, let me, let me clarify that. We obviously needed some stimulus money when you shut down the economy because of the pandemic and people aren't working, you had to give people, you had to give people some money and stuff like, um, but there was all this money got printed and a lot of it of course went to wall street. Um, the new jobs outlook. Okay. Unemployment's lower, but there's people, there's jobs that aren't being filled because people are like, I don't want to go back to work for crappy wages. Right, um, crappy wages, right. So so how do we, how do you see like all of this money printing? And I, I don't want to get too much into crystal ball stuff, but like how do you, as somebody that follows this quite closely, how do you see where we're headed with all of this money printing and then Increasing the debt ceiling, which, like you say, is just sort of a charade that they play like, oh, you know, like a, uh, I love resolution. a New Year's resolution analogy. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> how do you see all this playing out? Uh, printing money really has nothing to do with inflation. Creating okay. money. Creating money really has nothing to do with inflation. Because, again, that's only one part of the picture. The government creates and destroys money every second of every day. Banks create and destroy money every second of every day. What is that money being spent on? If it's if you spend even a small amount of money on something that's inflationary, that's bad. If you spend a gigantic amount of money on something that's non-inflationary, that's good. It's not inflationary. We could spend money on giving everybody education because we have the resources to give everybody education. So mm -hmm. if those resources exist, if we have something that we need to do, and we know that we have things that we need to do, currently education, healthcare, soon enough, you know, mitigating the climate crisis. If we have things that need to be done, and we have the things sitting around and ready to do them, including unemployed people, then by definition, we can do it. Creating money, even if it's however much, it doesn't matter. If there are resources to be purchased, then we can purchase them safely. So, so the creation of money, the idea that the creation of money causes inflation inherently is wrong. It assumes that the world is, the world stops, the world stops moving because the creation of money is like you're filling the sink, but the sink can be drained. The, the people wash their hands. You, things happen in addition to just that. It is overly simplistic to say that creating money causes inflation. Or do we have problems? Sure, we have problems. Yeah, I mean, we have lots of problems. But lot, all those problems are wages are too low. People don't have jobs because, oh, well, I want to stay home with my unemployment benefits. And Okay. So the problem is, is that wages are so low that they're less than federal benefits for the desperate. That's the problem. The problem is we don't have good jobs that pay decent wages and we allow people to, we allow companies to pay starvation wages. 
And then they turn around, oh, well, I, we can't hire people. Of course you can't hire people. There's a McDonald's sign uh, just a couple miles from my house that says, uh, sign on bonus. We'll give you $200 if you stay 60 days. We'll give you, an, or we'll give you $100 if you stay 60 days. We'll give you another $200 if you stay 90 days. And you can make up to $13 an hour. Screw your bonus. Pay me more. Right. I mean, that's what this is. So, so that's an example of the problems in society as opposed to the government does stuff and that's problematic. I mean, that's essentially what creating money causes inflation means. The government did something, so that's bad. That's essentially what it implies. And I, I'm obviously not, you're not saying that, but that's essentially what it implies. It matters what that spending is on, who that spending is for, what the spending is not being done for, who that spending is not being done for. There's just too many factors involved. Things need to be done. And as long if we, we need, we want to make a pie, we have the ingredients and the cook and the equipment to make a pie, we can make a pie. We can make another pie. We have plenty of pie ingredients. This is not a problem. So, I mean, that, that's kind of a roundabout way of addressing what you were saying. Um, and actually, it, if we can make sure that we have some time to talk about Mythicoin before I go. Yeah, absolutely. We'll talk about that. No, but you, know, you bring up a good point. Had, had the stimulus money been used for, you know, green jobs and putting people to work, making, you know, good union wages or forcing companies like Amazon and Walmart to pay a minimum of 15 an hour, but they should really be paying more like union wages of 20 to 25 an hour with full benefits, which they could afford to do. These big sure. companies made, yeah, they, yeah, made yeah. they made out like bandits during this pandemic. Of course. Um, not just in terms of profiting, because there was a lot of sectors that actually you know, online sales and and that stuff went up for these companies um, because they couldn't go to in-person stores, not to mention, um, uh, you know, other thing like travel and stuff got shut down. Um, sure. They made a lot of money. And also it, it probably should be to put up in here. Part of the problem we're also seeing, and I don't, this has to, this has to figure into inflation somewhere. I would imagine I, that this isn't my area of expertise, but we're seeing supply chain problems. I mean, just outside of the port yeah. of LA and Long Beach, we've got real, real problems. Right. Real problems are our problems, not the fact that we're doing stuff. Because when the government does stuff, by definition, money is the instructions of, of you know, telling who to do what and paying people for doing it. So saying that creating money causes inflation is essentially saying, oh, well, then we really need to create less money, which by definition means the government needs to do less stuff. And that's not what we need. The poor need our government. The poor need the government. That's all they got is our government. Yes, there is a difference between, a crucial difference between our leaders currently are horrible. <laughs> They're horrible. That doesn't mean that the institution, the idea of government is horrible. If someone has a hammer and all they do is hit you on the head with it, you don't outlaw hammers. You give the hammer to someone that is more competent and caring, and you start building stuff. It may be unlikely, it may be impossible, but the only chance that we have is to take over our government and start using it for better stuff. That is the only option that we have. Is it likely? Maybe not. Is it impossible? Maybe. I don't know. But it's the only chance we have because the government is the only entity that is stronger than the billionaires. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not impossible. Likely, no, because I don't think Americans Americans are too busy fighting with each other than to realize they're in class warfare. That's what's going sure. on. They, they privilege. They're, they're, they're holding on to their privilege. I have my house. I have my health care. I have mm -hmm. my, oh, I love my politician who keeps saying that he wants health care for the poor, but I don't push him on it because if I push him on it, then I might lose my privilege yep. and they might tax me. And if there's a million people desperate underneath me that I have to be taxed in order to pay for them, which is wrong, but that's what they fear. They're holding yeah. on to their privilege. Yeah. They're definitely holding on to their privilege. And also, yeah, like you say, like in the first cares act, um, you know, a year ago, a little over a year ago, you know, there was trillions of dollars that were given to wall street and had that money, as you say, been given directly to the people and UBI student debt forgiveness, um, rent, you know, just money flat out for rent. We wouldn't have this looming eviction crisis, this looming foreclosure crisis. We wouldn't have these things. And maybe we wouldn't be then having the inflation as you talk about, because everybody would be made whole. Um, yeah. A final point on about inflation, if I, if I may, I'm sorry, if you want to sure, sure. what you're saying. Okay. Inflation means inflation is a very specific thing. Most people think that it's a, this boogeyman. Inflation means the continuous rise in the price level, continuous, a rise in prices, one time is not inflation. A rise in prices in one sector of the economy is not inflation. The price of bread going up is not inflation, even if it continues. The price of everything, roughly speaking, everything going up and continuing to go up. So there's there's just a million things going on, um, and a lot. But most of our problem are real problems that you had mentioned before of supply chain issues and so on. If we address those real problems then these you know, inflation concerns will just be much less. Provide for people in mm. problems, will, inflation will be much less. Excellent conversation on the debt ceiling and inflation with uh, Jeff Epstein <clears throat> of Activist MMT Podcast. Please check that out. Today I talk with PhD political scientist, author and MMTer Joe Firestone about the many reasons why printing money causes inflation is wrong. The original and unedited video of this conversation can be found on the Kerberos Media YouTube channel, a link to which can be found in the show notes. This conversation was inspired by the middle of episode 96 with Graham Elwood. Graham expresses concern with all this money printing during the coronavirus pandemic as the primary cause of all this inflation. At the same time, he's a strong advocate for helping those who need it the most, such as with healthcare, education, and union and worker rights. These two things are contradictory. The government can only spend by creating more money, and there is little the government can do without spending as part of the process. The assertion that government money creation is inherently and always harmful is very close to saying that the government doing anything for anyone is inherently and always harmful. When the government does less, who always gets the short end of the stick? The answer, of course, are those who already get the short end of the stick. The full segment with Graham, which is about 10 minutes long, can be found in full after today's closing music. This conversation with Joe, our sixth episode on my podcast, is, as always, enlightening. My biggest takeaways are the following. The only thing that can be inflationary is money that is created 
that goes into the hands of citizens in the real economy who spend it in sectors of the economy that cannot increase production to meet that demand. Much of the money created by the government never reaches those hands to begin with, such as bank reserves and as through QE or quantitative easing, or a potential trillion dollar coin. The money that does reach the real economy may be invested or spent overseas. And since taxes and debts are highly regressive, much of it isn't spent, but rather is used to pay off those debts and taxes. Much of the money that is spent is done in sectors of the economy that can increase production to meet that demand. The amount left over that is indeed spent in potentially inflationary sectors is very small. My second takeaway from Joe is that the government can do bold things that can greatly reduce inflationary pressures. Some of it requires little to no money creation, such as by jailing corrupt CEOs, prosecuting and preventing price gouging, negotiating pharmaceutical prices, and increasing union and worker rights. Some of these things may require lots of money creation, such as by providing health care, education, and a livable planet for all. The world is not zero sum, it's positive sum. Some kinds of government spending is desperately needed and obviously beneficial. Some kinds of current spending is terribly harmful. The idea that government spending can only be harmful is, in addition to being wrong, anti-government and more precisely anti-poor propaganda. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons have exclusive access to several full-length episodes right now. Patrons also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, such as my recent episode with Warren Mosler. They also support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. Every little bit helps a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now, on to my conversation with Joe Firestone. Enjoy. <laughs>